from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Have you ever had someone change your mind when you thought your mind was made up? Our returning guest today is a controversial economist who knocked me for a loop. You see, I spent the first half of my life, wait for it, economically at least, conservative. But our returning guest made me think a lot. Sure, like any business person, I don't want to pay a dollar more in tax than I have to. But also, I'm sick and tired of hearing how people in this country suffer food insecurity and let's call it roof insecurity too. There must be a better way, right? There has to be. Well, there is. And buried in the Biden stimulus package is one giant step closer to joining what Germany, Turkey, UK, Ireland, Denmark, France, and Spain have been successfully doing for years. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. So meet again my co-host Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials in many countries. She protected First Amendment rights for the film industry, and she's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar. She's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Jane Albrecht, welcome back. Nice to be here, and welcome, Ioana. Dr. Ioana Marinescu. She's an economist joining us from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. She's a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, where she studies the labor markets to help us craft policies that are designed to enhance employment, productivity, economic security, antitrust law for the labor market, the universal basic income, which you'll hear more about, unemployment insurance, and another subject that is a point of contention in Washington these days, the minimum wage. She's testified for Congress and the Federal Trade Commission. She's been published or quoted in all the leading economic journals, as well as the New York Times, CNN, Wall Street Journal, and so on. And of course, now she's really made it. For a second time, she's here with us on Meet Me in the Middle. Joanna, welcome back. I'm really glad to be here. So, Joanna, you did it. You changed my mind. I had pegged you as one of those crazy liberals who wanted to tax wildly, spend like crazy, and now here I am really intrigued about your universal basic income solution. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Let's start with that quiet little section passed in Biden's stimulus package. What is the universal child benefit in that package that is now part of who we are as Americans? So this is a very interesting new benefit that Biden's plan introduced. And essentially, it gives the same amount of money to every child in this country and therefore helps every family. And what's interesting there is that we had child tax credit because it's a tax credit. You have to owe enough taxes in order to be able to claim that credit, which means that low-income Americans would not benefit from that child tax credit. And so with this new system... It will be more generous and most importantly, everybody benefits, including the lowest income people who arguably need it the most. We also know from research that the effect is often most positive for lower income children as far as improving their health and education. This is interesting to me. Out of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, this only accounts for $100 billion of expense. Only $100 billion? When did we get to the point of thinking $100 billion is just pocket change? Well, compared to the roughly five and change trillion that we've spent on these stimulus packages, we can talk about $100 billion being comparative pocket change, don't you think, Jane? I'd say I'd rather compare it to the defense budget, but no, I don't think it's ever pocket change. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I think it might be well spent. Ioana, are you familiar with Representative Rosa DeLauro? 
She's from Connecticut, and she spent two decades advocating for this child benefit, and she was the sponsor for this aspect of the stimulus bill. This kind of child benefit is extremely common in other countries. It's not terribly innovative in that sense, but at the same time, it's innovative in that it moves us closer to a universal basic income, meaning cash for all that is the same to all. In this case, it's for children, but that constitutes an interesting and important advance, especially because in this country, poverty is especially concentrated among families with kids. You know, it's an important kind of a personality change a little bit for this country, though. We have to admit, you know, actually, uh, Representative Rosa DeLauro said that this could be transformative for American families and might be a change as big as the New Deal or Social Security. She felt that this is of paramount importance, and it does seem like a remarkable shift in our personality one that I think we can feel pretty good about. But surprisingly, where, of course, Republicans are taking a more conservative position, Republican Senator Mitt Romney had a different approach. He proposed a child benefit that's even larger, but it was going to be financed differently. Can you explain what that is? So substantively, the Romney plan, in terms of the benefit it gives to people, is very similar to what we have in the Biden stimulus plan. The main difference is how we pay for it. The big difference is that the Romney plan, they try to come up with a pay for, meaning a way that every year the government can actually finance this through various sources. One big one is rearranging benefits for poor families, for example, by ending welfare completely, and instead it goes into this child benefit. So that's one like big ticket item. And part of the plan is by raising taxes on higher income individuals a little bit. And the main aspect of that in that plan is the repeal of the SALT deduction, which is a state and local uh, tax deduction that people can claim to lower their federal taxes. So, And typically, this would be around your property taxes. I just want to make this concrete for our listeners. You know, you pay your property tax, it's, it goes to your local governments, okay? And with this deduction, you can say, oh, I paid this to my local government, so therefore I can deduce that from what I owe for my federal taxes. So that allows me to pay less. But Ioana, it's not just the real estate tax, it's your state tax. And I'm not that rich, but I can tell you that it bothers me to pay federal income tax percentage on the tax that I give my state. It seems wrong to me. Sure. I mean, this is, I'm not trying to debate here if the system is fair or not, but Romney wants to cut that out. And the net effect is that rich people end up paying more taxes. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to debate if it's good or bad to cut it, okay. but I'm just, in terms of the who is that hurting to their pocket, is higher income people who already pay higher state and local taxes. Now they can no longer deduce it. And as a result, that means federal government gets more money into their coffers because there's no longer this deduction. That's all I'm trying to say here. Joanna, last time you sold me on the whole concept of universal basic income. I became somewhat obsessed. <laughs> nice. Let's call it UBI, universal basic income. Mm -hmm. How is UBI different from this child benefit? And is this child benefit a good first step? The key difference is that it would be for everybody, not just for kids. So similarly, a UBI would carry this principle to every person in the US. Every person gets a certain amount, no matter what, no strings attached. So that's the difference with the child benefit. 
I will note that some plans like the Yang plan for universal basic income actually doesn't go to children, but only to adults. So, you know, there's lots of designs like that about UBI that you can think about. But I think that it's actually very important that money goes to children because of the importance of supporting poor kids. And we know from research that the money makes a huge difference to their education and health outcomes. And therefore, later on, wait for it, that allows these people to pay more taxes and, you know, contribute to society meaningfully over their life course. So it's a very good investment from an economic perspective to make sure that we are building people's, as we call it, human capital, right, so that they can be productive citizens over their life course. So uh, I think that the idea of making sure that kids get this benefit is quite important. Let's get back into your definition of the universal basic income. Who gets it? How much is it? And then we're going to get into how much does it cost and what does it do for us? So the fundamental definition of a universal basic income is that every uh, person gets the same amount no matter what. So you don't have to have low income. You don't have to work or not work or be disabled or not or whatever it is. Everybody gets the same amount, no strings attached. So that's, that's the idea. Then how much? That depends because there's different plans where people arrive at different amounts. And frankly, there isn't necessarily a technical reason why this specific amount is definitely the best. It's partly a matter of political decision making. Well, how much does it have to be to get people off of the poverty floor? So just as an example, Andrew Yang's plan, you know, so Yang was a candidate in the primary for the Democratic Party with his plan that he was proposing, he's guaranteeing $24,000 per year per person, per adult. That's one example that people have proposed. But again, there is no like intrinsic definition of how much is going to be. You know, this is something that different plans will have slightly different amounts. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Andrew Yang's plan is guaranteeing $24,000 per year. Just for argument's sake, let's use that figure. We're having that go to, what are there, 240 million adults right now in the country? Probably something like that. You're saying it's without obligation and it's an unconditional cash transfer. That's right. What do you mean by unconditional? Unconditional is by contrast with some benefits that come with certain things that you have to do in order to get it. So as an example, I also study unemployment insurance benefits. And the definition of unemployment insurance is, just to make it simple, two things. First of all, you have to be unemployed. So if you get another job, you're losing your benefits. So as an example, and secondly, you have to search for a job. If you're just sitting there and doing nothing, you're not supposed to be getting unemployment benefits. Just as an example, a UBI, no matter if you have a job or not, you're searching or not, you have kids or you don't, it's always there for you. Why can't we say, in order to get this money, you have to give us two days a month to do whatever you're good at. It could be helping us clean up the beach. It could be building a road. It could be helping teach people a language. Why is that something you don't think is fair? It's not necessarily unfair. It really depends on what's your key goal in with this policy. And some is of it is philosophical considerations. But however good that could be, 
uh, there's different considerations that have to do with efficiency, meaning in the end, how much are you going to get out of those extra hurdles? So for one thing, is this the best way to incentivize productive community engagement? Maybe if the program is well designed, but it could be, and we've all been there, some of these programs are kind of just a bureaucracy kind of thing that you have to say you did, but in fact, it's not really effective at generating truly socially useful engagement. Yeah, well, we could have another show to talk about whether or not a program that is run by the government can be efficient in any way. The other thing is that how much would that actually achieve in terms of potentially putting off some people and the right people? Because potentially with making people jump through extra hoops, you might be ending up not giving the income to those who need it the most. And there's some evidence, you know, going into that direction that as you make requirements more complicated, it can, in fact, end up with those who need the thing the most not getting it. I understand the sentiment behind it, but what does it really add compared to the extra complexity that it introduces into the scheme? Because the beauty of a universal basic income, and that's something that Mitt Romney is proposing, and I think it's fascinating, he wants social security to be paying it out upfront. But if you have conditions, that kind of simplicity goes a little bit out of the window because then you have to check on people, monitor them, make sure they file their something, something, something for qualifying. So again, I mean, it depends on your priorities, but I invite you to ask yourself how much would truly be gained uh, versus, you know, these other administrative burdens, efficiency, and the potential for deterring people who actually should be getting the income. Is it fair to think about a universal basic income as social security for everyone? Once you reach retirement age, whether you work or not, you're entitled to your social security check. That's right. That's one way to think about it. Exactly. And what did Mitt Romney say about the relationship to social security? Oh, he proposed that the child allowance be paid by the social security administration. I see. And is that what's happening or it's not? Right now, no, but it's it's an interesting way because obviously the social security administration is well equipped to pay out bad cash benefits to many people. So that would probably be an efficient way of going about it. Jane, currently the child benefit is only one year long. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of being tacked on to $5 trillion of other stimulus that have been yes. thrown into a burden of our national debt. But in reality, everybody who has been sponsoring that aspect of the stimulus wants to find a way to keep that ongoing. And once it's ongoing, you have to figure out a way to pay for it. Sure. That's where Mitt Romney's concept comes in, potentially. Let's talk dollars and cents here, Ioana. We have had $5 trillion in stimulus. We're talking about the universal basic income probably costing about $2.8 trillion a year. So it's expensive. But at the same time, you're talking about eliminating the trillion dollars worth of welfare because this kind of brings up everybody to a a certain level. So at the end of the day, you're talking about, give or take, $1.7 or so trillion of additional expense. Let's talk about how you're going to pay for it and what it would mean to you. I know you have a little slide rule over there so that you can tell us what something costs. If I make $100,000 in income, and I like the idea of never having to hear about a starving American again, how much does it cost me to accomplish that? Before you go there, Bill, for your estimate, how much UBI is given? It's the $24,000 Yang program. I invite our listeners to go to ubicalculator.com. 
For example, if you're two adults, working age adults making $100,000 with the Yang plan, you actually don't pay anything. You're making an extra almost $15,000 a year. So you're not getting the full $24,000. Your additional tax would be about $9,000, but you're getting $24,000 in benefit by being an adult in America. That's exactly right. Okay, so let's take it up. The guy who makes a half a million dollars. Right. So this guy is living pretty well already paying a fair amount of tax. What's it going to cost that guy to never have to hear about a starving American again? So in this case, if you're two adults with 500,000 income with the Yang plan, you're going to be paying on net about $18,000. $18,000. So you're going to get 24000 but you're going to be paying... You're going to be paying about $42,000. So I've got to take it up another notch. If I make a million dollars... Thank you very much. Under Yang's plan, you would be on net paying $70,000 more in taxes. So 7% for someone who makes a million dollars. So once you start getting to that level of income, you're paying some real money in order to not have to hear about anybody starving in the country again. That's right. When you talk about 7%, still seems like a fair trade. When you think about it, because it is Social Security for all, is this going to come with a call for eliminating Social Security as we know it today? Right now, you know, if you look at the Yang plan, it has a bunch of somewhat complicated components, but a big way that it's paying for this is with a value-added tax. Oh my God. All this talk about additional taxes that each of us may have to pay to do it. Value-added tax is not only extremely costly up and down the food chain, but it is politically the most addictive tax you can put it in the hands of a politician. Any country that's ever introduced a value-added tax, you end up with 15%, 18%, 21%. It's ugly. I just don't think we should go there in the United States. That's one of my few real tough hurdles. If we can pay for it some other way, fine. Plus, in the United States, that would end up to be a federal value-added tax on top of state and local sales taxes. So just to be clear, while the Yang plan has different styles of taxes where the net would be for the million dollar guy, they were paying $70,000 for this. For the half million dollar guy, they were paying $18,000 for this. For the $100,000 guy, they actually were net positive on this plan. And there's a variety of ways where that can be taxed. But I just wanted to make sure our listeners understand what it costs them to never have to hear about a starving American again. And then with that, We'll be back in 30 seconds, and we'll be asking Dr. Marinescu to take the other side and argue against her own package. We'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Okay, doctor, what are some of the credible arguments against either the universal child benefit or the universal basic income concept? So I really think that the key counter-argument that someone may have really has to do with targeting 
And with the idea of having a smaller program that really is directed at certain categories of people who clearly are in need. And so I think that there's a conception that that's a better idea. And it could be argued for two reasons. One is you might want to keep a very small government. Secondly, you really want to make sure that the money only goes to certain categories of individuals that you have determined should be getting help. So that's one perhaps more conservative style argument. Now, from a more progressive style argument, you might want to say, let's keep it really targeted because the overall cost that it looks like it's costing, you know, if you look at the whole benefit could be smaller. And at least for the people who are, you know, more in need, we can potentially give them more this way by not kind of spreading it thin over more people. These arguments around targeting, in my view, and I will add also the difficulty of potentially raising taxes. As we have discussed, in order to finance this kind of universal payment, right, you would probably have to raise taxes somewhere especially if you don't want uh, poor people to be worse off, right? Because I just want to explain something that's very simple, but critical. If you just take the current benefits to poor people, all the ways that we help them, you take that out and you spread it over everybody, obviously that's going to make them lose out, okay? And that's very important to understand because I'm taking a pot of money that right now is going to the needy and I'm spreading it over everybody. So, If you want to have universal, you can't just do that. You could do some of that. So repurpose some of the money that currently is going to the poor, but you also have to somehow raise taxes. That could be complicated. It's not impossible. I think there's smart things that one could try, but it could be complicated. And so therefore, someone who is progressive and wanting to be realistic might want to say, hey, like, you know, let's make sure we keep our help relatively generous, but, you know, only targeted to certain categories of the population. So we don't have to deal with the issue of how we're going to raise additional money uh, in order to get that done. So to me, those, and I try to make the argument both from a more conservative and more progressive viewpoint, I think the targeting to me is the fundamental issue to think about, you know, do we care enough about this idea of universality that we want to push strong for that versus these more targeted versions of the social safety net? And by targeted, you mean largely means testing or disability? Uh, Yeah, means or categorical, like, you know, disability, etc. So obviously the taxes is an issue, although we've gone over that and what it would cost and whether or not that's a good balance. But you also have inflation worries, right, with something like this? Right. So that I, I don't think that's an issue. Uh, we don't have a lot of evidence about it, but the evidence we have is pretty convincing uh, in that people have looked at uh, poor countries. And the reason why it's interesting is because there you can give people a lot of money compared to their income and see, you know, if you do something quite generous, what will happen to the local economy? So what they've shown there is that there was no uh, effect on prices in those villages in poor countries. And The only time when there was an effect was in the absolutely most remote villages. And that's because these most remote villages would find it hard to bring in, you know, additional products and so on to market, right? But almost in no case, there was a price increase uh, in those best studies in poor countries. And I think that's very reassuring because villages, it's not easy to get there. So if even there in a relatively closed economy, you don't see a significant price increase. Instead, there was an increase in economic activity. Just to clarify for a second for our listeners, define what causes inflation. Broadly speaking, inflation occurs when 
there is an increase in the amount of money in the economy relative to the amount of goods and services that you can buy with that money. So, you know, to think of it most simply, assume that the, that the amounts of goods and services that are produced stay constant, they stay the same. And then somehow the Fed pours in a whole bunch of additional money. But again, remember the amounts of goods and services you can buy stay the same. Well, what's going to happen then is that everybody wants to buy more stuff because now they have more money, but the amount of stuff is the same. So that pushes prices up because whoever is selling the stuff, seeing all these customers vying to buy, naturally have an incentive to raise prices. And so that's basically how inflation occurs by more money chasing a limited amount of goods and services. Does that include a head of lettuce and a dozen eggs? That and everything else, uh, real estate, uh, you name it, all the things in the economy. However, of course, that's an assumption that the amount of goods and services stays fixed. And the critical question for us economists is, if there's more money in the economy, could it be that the amount of goods and services also increases? And as long as the amounts that we can spend on increase in a commensurate way with the amount of money in the economy, there won't be inflation because essentially more people want to buy, but people who produce more widgets. And so prices don't go up. It's just that there's more widgets uh, being produced. Okay? okay. And essentially what the research tends to show is that mostly it's that second way that generally speaking in recent times and based on many experiments, usually uh, and there is a limit to that, just to be clear. But essentially, for small increases in money, typically you don't see inflation because instead more stuff is being produced in order to satisfy you know, the added demand. I also want to say a very critical thing with UBI. If it's a fully financed UBI, meaning no public deficit, it's completely with repurposing benefits, increasing taxes, and so on, there is no increase in the money in circulation because what you give on the one hand, is being taken away, on the other hand, either by cuts in benefits or by higher taxes. Or, God forbid, more efficient government spending. But I know that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, Bill, I don't think you could finance it completely with finding inefficiencies in government spending. No, but partially. Partially. But you want to, with what you just talked about, would you support eliminating Social Security or combining Social Security with all this? So, you know, I think that we have to think carefully about are there certain things, especially if we're considering a, a somewhat generous uh, UBI, and what is that? It will depend on who you're talking to. Are there things that are reasonable to eliminate because of that? And this is always in debate. But for example, you might think that things like food stamps that are cash-like might reasonably uh, be eliminated with a, with a system like that. What is clearly shouldn't be eliminated is social insurance, social insurance that ensures against bad stuff that could happen to you, such as you lose your job, okay? Then you want to have an amount that kind of is good enough to cover your usual expenses. This UBI is just a minimum. But if you're a middle-class person who loses their job, social insurance is there to make sure that, you know, you have a reasonable income stream while you're looking for a new job. Similarly with health insurance, oh my God, this could lead to catastrophic financial problems if you fall onto, you know, a bad health condition. So you don't want to take away health insurance. The word insurance is critical here just because we have a, a UBI. I'd say there's a good case to be made about replacing all forms of welfare with a UBA co concept. It's inefficient when you have age-dependent children here, food stamps there. I think it makes a lot of sense. And that's a trillion dollar savings, Jane. 
Right. And I think that that basically there's a lot to be said for it. But I'm also someone who believes that all these great ideas uh, are nothing more than talking points unless you get them adopted. And so for that reason, I would favor more of a means testing approach. In fact, uh, radically, I would have favored means testing for Social Security very generously. But so that's a difference. It's a change in the contract. The social contract that we had back during the New Deal to get Social Security was you will put your money away and you will get your money back. And they created, quote, the Social Security Trust Fund, which, of course, is a joke because they keep rating it for the general revenue. So what we would finally do is come to an awareness that that was a fiction that's never really been practiced. And what Social Security is really about is providing the elderly who need that support universal basic income. With means testing with the universal basic income, Jane, you're going to end up having to sell a much higher tax cost to people who have money. And it's going to be a lot harder. I'm not so sure, Bill. Well, then define what you mean by means testing. Income above a certain level, and it should be very generous. There's no need. There's no need to pay them, but you're still going to tax them. So it's going to cost them more money in the end. And as a politician, you're going to get killed. You'd have to run the numbers. So I just want to make sure that everybody understands that with most UBA plans that people propose, the way, if it's financed, so let's talk about financed ones that, you know, somehow find a way to pay for it. Most of them come with a system such that higher income households pay more than what they get from the UBI. And so one way to perhaps kind of try to get at that without looking like you're increasing taxes is to only give people the net. There's two ways of doing a UBI where people end up in the same place. One way is everybody gets their $24,000, let's say, and then they're asked to pay a certain amount of taxes that overall is going to finance that. And then it's very apparent, well, both you get your benefit, but at the same time, your taxes might look high because you have to pay for that. Or instead, and that's more similar, would look more similar to what you're saying, Jane, is you only get the net. So, you know, we're looking at your tax liability minus your $24,000 and whatever that is, you know, you just get the net. And depending on how it's seen politically, that pay you the net might seem more appealing because it doesn't look like taxes have increased so much and it looks more like a targeted benefit because then the lower income you have, you get a benefit if you're high up you know, you might see uh, an increase in your taxes. And the simple reality is you have to find a lot less money to finance a means-tested UBI. That's, that's a simple reality. And as long as nowhere in the system does it result in motivating someone not to work. Okay. Because some of the means tests that we have had in other programs, mm -hmm. like unemployment, actually inspire someone to work less. And that's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to have, ideally, is a tax rate that is somewhat smooth. So you don't want to have that once you reach a certain income, poof, you know, your whole benefit is taken away from you because that creates not only bad incentives, but unfairness, right? Because somebody, think about the fairness aspect, somebody's bettering themselves a little bit and you're telling them, too bad for you, we're going to take away your whole benefit now that you're just slightly better off. So that's why you want to have something that's a little bit smooth. Maybe they're getting less, but it's not like just a little bit more income is going to make you completely drop off your benefit. And again, a UBI with a tax system that supports it 
would very much look like that, especially if you're just paying the net, what I was saying. So, you know, how much UBI minus your tax liability, it would result in lower income people getting something. And as you go like further up the income distribution, you'll be paying something. So, you know, those are just some things to consider. So this is going to have to do it for part one of the Ioana Marinescu Meet Me in the Middle. We're going to come back next week and talk about something equally as challenging. And we're also going to have our lightning round, which I know people like. We'll talk to you about that next week. Joanna and Jane, thank you so much. Joanna, how can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at mjoanna, so M-I-O-A-N-A. Wonderful. Don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around to find next week's Meet Me in the Middle. And thank you to our producer, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And our executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. And Joey, hold, hold the music for just a second. You know, here on Meet Me in the Middle, we listen before we blow a gasket. So give me a minute on just the other side. We all know that we've got to work to make America a better place for all of our citizens. We know that. We know that at most times, progress costs money. Most of us are willing to make a reasonable sacrifice. But not if you make people who make money and employ people feel alienated. Politicians love to use rhetoric like make rich people pay their fair share. Now, that's a way to get elected, but that's a stupid statement. The suggestion that high-income earners who make $400,000 don't pay way higher percentages of tax than someone making $50,000 is ridiculous. Yeah, I know. The stories of multi-billionaires who avoid tax altogether. But most high-income earners pay their fair share, percentage-wise, and more. So here's a thought. Instead of just taking or picking the pockets of wealthy people, which anyone would resist, they'd hire accountants to figure out sideways out of paying. Let's find a way to motivate, inspire, and appreciate. Let high taxpayers see and feel the product of their donation. I've been to so many charity events, like, for example, the Napa Valley Wine Auction that raises like $15 million a year where for each of a hundred auction lots, people donate hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars to kids and schools and hospitals. Why do those people donate? Well, first, it's done in front of all their friends, and so sometimes they even compete with each other to see who can donate more. Second, Napa Valley makes it fun. Third, it makes people feel good. Nobody takes, it's just given, and it's celebrated. Maybe we need to learn something from Napa, rather than just creating a powerful resistance by rich people because we're just taking and we're vilifying them at the same time. Perhaps we should try inspiring for a change. It would be a good change. Maybe we could then fund something like the universal basic income. We'll see you next week, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirko Media, media for your mind.